About a month ago, I, I, I did the first of what I want to be three sermons on the subject of encouragement. And we looked at a, a passage in Hebrews about the fact that we can encourage one another because we have access to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may or may not have been here or remember, but I spent a lot of time looking at that. Uh, I want to look today at how encouragement works primarily from Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses. So if you'd like to open a Bible there to Philippians 2, I'd invite you to do that. Let me read these verses and then we'll look at them in detail. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's as far as I'll read right now in, in Philippians. The verse we looked at, one of the verses a a few weeks ago was from Hebrews 10, which says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want us to consider for a few moments that phrase, let us consider. Let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Because if, when you give something to another person for their consideration, you want them to think about it. You want them to uh, analyze it and look at it. It's not a passing thought. It's not a fleet. You don't want it to be a fleeting thought. You want them, in a sense, to study it, think about it. And here we're told by the writer of Hebrews, think about, ponder, meditate on, Consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Although I never met him, I read some time ago about Dolphus Weary. uh, W-E-A-R-Y. Dolphus Weary, who was the head of Mendenhall Ministries in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Dolphus Weary grew up in rural Mississippi, impoverished in the 1950s and the 1960s. African-American by background, he experienced firsthand some terrible effects of the racism of that time and place. And he said by the time he had reached adolescence, then even as a young teenager, he had come to believe, and I quote, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I work, I'll always be second class here. The system is rigged against me. I'll always make just enough money to get by, but never enough to get ahead. That's the way it is, and it's never going to change. I mean, those are some hopeless conclusions for a young man to reach. And yet they said that was his conviction. So he determined, like many others have before him, that if he got the chance, he would leave not only Mendenhall, he would leave Mississippi, and he would never come back. And he assumed that he was destined to a life of minimum wage, menial physical labor. But God had very much a different purpose for Dolphus Weary's life. And by his own testimony, and I'm going to read you what he said about it, it occurred during a high school basketball game, in the moments right after a high school basketball game, when his high school that he attended called Harper High was playing another 
local team from their county called New Hymn. Now, H-Y-M-N. I've never heard a high school called New Hymn High School, but that was it. Here's what Dolphus wrote about this particular game and what happened right afterwards. It's a little bit longer than I normally read, but I think that you, uh, that I read out loud, I mean, but I, um, I, I think it will give you a flavor. Dolphus said, at halftime, we were beating them on their own court 45 to 12. It was a joke. So the other team asked if their coach could play with them. He had been a star player at Mississippi's largest black college, and we said, okay. Ten minutes later into the second half, we were in a whole new ball game. Our guys were still shooting okay from the floor, but defensively we were in trouble. Their coach scored again and again, and their players, instead of looking grim, were becoming excited. Their home court crowd was also screaming as the player coach cut our lead to two points. With 30 seconds left in the game, they called timeout. The play was for him to hold the ball and then take the last shot in the final seconds. So we went into a man-to-man defense. Since I'd always thought I was a good defensive player, I wanted him. I knew that the one thing in the world he wanted was to make that shot tie the score, and send the game into overtime. So he dodged left, and I was there. He looked for a chance to pass. No way. He dribbled down the court. I took after him. The clock ticked down to five seconds. When he finally went for the shot, I went up with him, and I was a great jumper. He changed his shot in midair. The ball hit the rim and bounced away. The crowd went wild. And then something incredible happened. Our team was headed to the locker room when this coach from the other team came up and put his hand on my shoulder and said, have you ever thought about playing college basketball? And Dolphus writes, I was stunned. With the noise and the emotion of the moment and all that was going on, I thought he was joking. But when I looked into his eyes, I could tell he was serious. And the significant thing was his touch on my shoulder. Just a real sense of confidence and respect he communicated to me. My own coach had never said or done anything like that. But I immediately started thinking up all kinds of excuses why it couldn't happen. Me? No way. I'm too short. And I don't have a very good outside jump shot. And I don't have to switch. And I'd have to switch to guard. And I was going down the list of objections. But the guy kept talking to me there in the hall. And then he writes, for the first time in my life, I started feeling that maybe I did have what it took to play college ball. If I did, I might be able to use that as a way to pay my tuition. Well, let me just jump way ahead and say that changed everything for Dolphus Weary. And it not only took him to college, it put him on a path to where he went back. Well, let me just read you what I put here. God brought this man from New Hymn High School into Dolphus's past. That single question prompted a chain of events that ultimately took him through college into ministry and back to, the, to Mississippi, to Mendenhall, to bring the hope of the gospel to his hometown community. Now, it's probably not as true today, but there was a time when Mendenhall Ministries became a premier model throughout, that people looked through throughout the United States of a ministry, of a holistic ministry to an impoverished community. Mendenhall Ministries. 
And it all started literally with one question. Have you thought about playing college basketball? One man went out of his way. I don't know whether that man was a believer or not, but to do what Hebrews says, let us consider how to stimulate one another on to love and good deeds. So as we look at these verses, I want you to start with a question. You and me to start at a question we ask ourselves. Who are the Dolphus Wearies in your life? I mean, who is the person or people you could encourage? And do you have anyone in your life like that coach that encourages you? Okay, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, and then 1 through 4. We'll look first at the couple of verses. I think if you and I are to encourage others, we have to have the right attitude. Let me tell you what's happening in Philippians. Paul's in prison. Uh, a fellow believer, a fellow Christian worker named Epaphroditus uh, had brought a generous gift from the church in Philippi. He brought it from that church to Paul in prison. They'd also sent their love for him and their support and their concern for Paul through Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus also brought the bad news that there was division in the church. It wasn't too bad at that time, but it had the potential to become very bad. There were false teachers, like in many other cases in the New Testament, coming in from outside. They were causing disagreements among the members on the inside of the, of the church. And so Paul, in writing back, is not only writing to say thank you for your love and appreciation, his appreciation for the gift, <clears throat> he's also giving instruction about how to deal with disunity and division. And he mentions here four resources we have not only for unity but to encourage one another. The first one says, if there is any encouragement from being united in Christ. And the way they are, he's saying this is not that we don't have encouragement, if you have any encouragement. It was a way of speaking in that language at that time of if there is and there is. It was a way to say there is encouragement since we have encouragement. For being united in Christ. So it gives the idea of encouragement. If there's any encouragement, it means support. It's a term like an architectural term, like these columns somewhat that bracket up the the roof, the wall, uh, the, the support structure at the end. He's saying if we have that support in Christ, when we put our trust in him as our redeemer, we see our problem of sin and death. We recognize that when he died on the cross, he was put there. Our sin was placed on him. He was punished in our place. When I put my faith in him, that it's through him that I'm made right with God, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within me, I have new life, and I have encouragement, this comfort from Christ. And he says, you have that as a resource, as believers, that you did not have before you were a believer. Second, well, let me say this, that encouragement should make us want to encourage others because we have this resource. Second, if there is comfort and there is in his love that we have this loving tenderness from God. It's the idea like of gentle counsel. It's the idea, honestly, of like that coach, probably in a tender way, serious way, saying, have you ever thought about playing college basketball? Third, he says, if there is fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit. So I not only have, as a believer, the encouragement, I have comfort from God's love, and I have this fellowship, this partnership with other believers. And fourth, he says, there's an experience of the tender mercies of God's compassion, that God has shown me in Christ mercy, not sternness, 
And therefore, I'm in a position to show that to others as well. Now, I don't know if any of you have this book. I bought it uh, some time ago. It's called By Their Blood. This was the second edition. <clears throat> and uh, James and Marty Heffley put this together. It's called Christian Martyrs of the 20th Century. You can find books like Fox's Book of Martyrs and others that go back in time, back to the, to the New Testament era. But this is more, a more current, you know, at least for the 20th century. And I want to read you about uh, a, a letter that's not to me only an incredible letter, but an attitude of a, a woman who, who died, who ultimately died in China. And it was after, if you, if you remember what happened, what's called the Boxer Rebellion. Um, let, me, let me back up. When you hit subjects in the New Testament, you have to look at context. Uh, I have people, because I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I teach our new members class, or I inquires class, people will say, I thought, I've heard that Presbyterians believe in predestination. So that always comes up. We talk about predestination and some of the distinctives that are often associated with Presbyterianism. What I try to stress in there, not only what the accurate definition and application of, of that doctrine is, but I say you've got to realize in the New Testament, almost every time that subject is addressed, it's two people that are going through hard times. If you read Romans, Romans 9, Romans 8, he's dealing with how do you handle suffering. That's why it concludes such teaching with who shall separate us from the love of God. Because it's when we're going through hard times, that's when we are asking, does God love me? Does God care? So to take it out of that context often doesn't really do it justice. This talk on unity is the same context. It's suffering. Now, just listen. You don't even need to look there. Let me read you the verses that come at the end of chapter 1. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man, for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. They were getting ready to be persecuted. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Now listen to this verse. This comes right before this section on unity. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know what brings about unity is common suffering. And that's what they were facing. So just to talk about being unified uh, without that context is, is, uh, doesn't give it the full picture. So he tells him this, and now I want to read you an example of that. That's why I had to back up and tell you about what was happening to this young woman. In June of 1900 in China, uh, when it was still open for missionaries to be in China, Okay. Uh, mobs went on a rampage through cities in northern China. They looted, they burned churches, they particularly targeted the missionaries and missionary families, the foreigners, the foreigners that were there as missionaries. They killed many Christians. In fact, in 1900, in the summer of 1900, 188 foreign missionaries and their children were slaughtered. And I'm going to read you the story of a letter of written one that, that wrote this. She was named Lizzie Atwater. 
married for two years. She and her husband were missionaries there, and she was expecting a baby when she writes this. Um, they, in a, they had been sought. They were being uh, pursued. And she writes this to her family and says, Dear ones, this was that summer. This is August the 3rd. Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there still seemed a chance to life. But God has taken away that feeling, and now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven. And my dear mother will be glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passes understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, has been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it will be a miracle. I send my love to you all and the dear friends who remember me. Well, less than two weeks later, 12 days later, they got out of the area. Some guards were assigned to them. Um, but the guards uh, proved to be assassins, and they murdered her and her husband and, and, and five other missionaries. What, what gives a person that kind of attitude to approach suffering that way, with such a, a unity and a, a, an encouraging attitude toward others? Well, let's, um, let's look at what we have here. He gives us these resources, and he tells us where to be humble. Since we have all these things, it says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Uh, humility is probably best defined by saying what it's not. It's, it's not self-centeredness. It's the opposite of self-centeredness. It is not insecurity. It is not being down on yourself. It is not being filled with fear. But Paul's concern here is for consideration for others that that must precede consideration for ourselves, concern for ourselves. In Romans, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. I've said this to our congregation uh, of preaching here before, but the worst sinner, the reason I can hold others in higher esteem is because the worst sinner you know, the worst sinner I know is me. I suspect your sin, but I know my sin. I'm, I can question your motives, but I'll usually know my motives, or at least the portion I know often isn't good, what it ought to be. And so that's why the Apostle Paul could call himself the, the chief of sinners. He really meant it. That was the worst sinner he, he meant. It doesn't mean he had committed more sins than anyone else or, or even on a scale the worst. But in his mind, he can also say, I'm the chief of sinners. In my mind, I can say, I'm the worst sinner I know. I know a little bit about somebody else's sin, but I know a whole lot about my own. So having this understanding of who you are, who I am through this, then it allows me to do the next thing. 
which it says, do not look out for your own interest. So that desire, that self-centeredness that says, I've got to have my rights, my plans, my interest, my appeasement, my satisfaction, it has to look out and see what are the needs of others around us. And so Paul's calling us as believers that that should be our, our attitude, our ongoing attitude, that we have mutual concern. Now, when that happens, you can have doctrinal disagreement over, over certain, what I'd say, tertiary issues. We can, uh, we can not agree with maybe methodology on certain things, or, but we can still be unified. We can still be of one mind. I had the privilege to serve for a short time, just like a year, 14 months, at Spanish River Presbyterian Church in Boca Raton, Florida, when I was right out of college. And I, one of the greatest highlights of that 14 months was each Monday morning from about 10 until 1, we would have a staff meeting. And there were about 10 of us on the staff there was Dan Allender, who was a counselor and went on to author a number of books on counseling and stuff. There was Reggie Kidd, who is a professor of New Testament at Reform Seminary. All these guys were either right out of seminary or like assistant pastors. There was there were uh, uh, Gene Musselman, who was the, the women's ministry helper. There were there were a number, and I, I had never been around people that could openly argue, <laughs> I'm being from South, you may think it, you don't say it. <laughs> they said it. They were, they were from other parts of the country that have a more gifted at abrasiveness than, than we were. <laughs> and they would go toe-to-toe. One, one Monday, I remember the pastor who y'all have heard me talk about, he spoke here. He spoke here a couple of years ago. He, he died this past January. But he was, uh, at that time, he'd like to read a lot of, this was this was 19, this was 1978. Um, Saturday Night Live, I guess, had just come out. I don't know. But, uh, and he was reading uh, stuff about positive attitude, Robert Schuller kind of stuff. And he, he would come in and he'd talk about how important attitude. And I remember one morning, Monday morning, he came in. He, the pastor was sitting there saying, you know, I've really been feeling good about myself lately. I'm trying to look at these strengths and all. And he went on and on. And it... I was just taking this in, and it got quiet. And then Dan Allender, who was the counselor in the room, said, well, Dave, you're consistently late to staff meeting. Today you were 15 minutes late. You didn't say anything about it. Already today you violated two policies that Jim Austinson right over there passed to get, you know, in the church that worked for. You've done this, 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 and this. If you're feeling good about yourself, I don't know why. Now, that was the, that's how staff meetings went. <laughs> and, but it was, it was expected and it was dealt with, and they would talk it out. And I would see such disagreements, sometimes theologically or what we were doing methodologically in the church. And what I remember after one of those meetings was Dan Allender, the guy who I just told you, the counselor, and Reggie Kidd, who they'd had a strong disagreement. When the meeting was over, I saw him hug. saw these two men hug. I said, I love you, brother. Now, what, that, that is, 
That's not fake. That wasn't fake. You could try to fake that in today's world. That is because of what it says here. We have the encouragement in Christ if there's any fellowship, if there's any comfort. It's because of that that we can have unity. Last of all, I'll leave you with this thought. He says, we are to do this, back to the Hebrews verse, as you see the day drawing near. There's a sense of urgency. Uh, there's a sense of urgency. And it's easy to, uh, I, I've learned, I haven't learned many things as a pastor, but I've learned this. When someone has a need that someone's told me about, like I was told yesterday by John Kinzer, or one, somebody told me that Pat Wall's dad is, is, close, is very, very sick, close to death. I've learned when that thought comes through my mind, I better act on it that moment. And don't write it down and don't put it off. Right then, drop what you're doing. And so that's what I did. I make a phone call. I leave a message if the person is available, or I talk to them if they are. I I try to do something right then. And I take it as we've got to do this now. Don't wait till next week. And I've got to stop now. Let's pray. Father, we need people to spur us on to love and good deeds. We need to do the same for others. So we thank you for where you have sent people like that into our lives. We pray that we might be even like that coach, whether he intended it as as such or not, to Dolphus Weary, to be an encouragement to others. Help us to err on the side of doing so and not to talk ourselves out of it. And uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that our ideal example of a person who did not seek his own selfish interest, but the interest of others. In his name we pray. Amen.